This is Glenn Crooks on Frame. On May 21st, 2013, the New York City Football Club was unveiled. The 20th Major League Soccer franchise was born. A day later, Farron Soriano, the CEO of the Manchester City Football Club, who owns 75% of NYCFC, told a gathering of reporters, quote, we will have to play in a temporary location for two years, maybe three. Six and a half years later, New York City is still in that temporary home, Yankee Stadium. Today, on frame, I'll interview the author of an article for The Outfield. He'll provide a glimmer of hope for a solution. In fact, we both attended a recent community board meeting, and that was in the South Bronx. From that meeting, a panel of experts, including an architect for the UK who has experience in city stadium design. I'll also have a chat with him. And in the final segment of this episode, a Villanova professor and sociologist, an expert in sports and society, including stadium financing. He'll provide ample warning and suggestions to any community considering the addition of a stadium. There was a tweet on October the 28th from the outfield. They are at Outfield NYCFC, and it says, Could a Bronx soccer stadium happen this time for NYCFC? New documents, lobbying records, and an upcoming planning meeting with key figures preparing for the possibility reports at Soup in NYC 27. It's Chris Campbell. He's the guy that uh, wrote the piece uh, with the headline NYCFC Stadium Plans Gather Steam uh, in the Bronx. There was a lot of response to it. I saw it, and I ended up uh, uh, sharing a seat. Next, well, we didn't share a seat, but uh, sitting right next to Chris Campbell at this planning meeting. So I want to welcome Chris uh, into On Frame. Chris, what's happening? How are you? Good, Glenn. How you doing? Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I, uh, you know, and really congratulations to you in the outfield for, uh, you know, staying uh, up to date on this. I, you know, I, I know the supporters in particular who are the lifeblood of the club are really appreciative. And I'm sure you're uh, aware, and I know you go to the games, that, it's uh, it's something that uh, has almost become uh, annoying, uh, the lack of any information to the supporters about a soccer-specific stadium. But the one thing I, I, I want to do or don't want to do, I don't want to assume that anybody listening, Chris, is uh, aware of the, the, the recent background and what you uh, have written about um, most recently, which also I- included some uh, some perspective what led to this uh, planning meeting. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of interesting where uh, in, where this all started from. We started looking into, um, you know, potential stadium news back in April, which um, started just from some curiosity in terms of, uh, you know, what there might be out there. And then it just turned into a, um, a full uh, full dive in um, requesting public documents um, and uh, other public records requests from local politicians. And actually, that's where kind of um, we, we saw some uh, some of the um, uh this happening in terms of the, the meeting that occurred on Wednesday. Um, uh, the outfield had a, attended a few community board meetings for Bronx Community Board 4, which um, would be the uh, local community where the rumored stadium would be um, would be developed. And, um, and, and in those meetings... And specifically, that's the 153rd Street and River Avenue location, the GAL site, which we'll get into a little bit, but that's that's what we're talking about here. Exactly, exactly. Um, so in the uh, in the May uh, 2019 community board forum meeting, um, both uh, council member council member district um, uh, Diana Ayala, as well as district manager Paul Phillips, had discussed um, the uh, the potential rumors around the uh, the, the rumored stadium um, at that location. And um, in following that meeting, um, we submitted some uh, public records requests um, for documentation as well as any communications um, around the rumored stadium. Um, from that, we, uh, we, we found um, that the uh, that Bronx Community Board 4 had requested this technical assistance panel to be performed um, by the Urban Land Institute. And, um, and uh, Community Board 4 um, uh, sponsored that. Um, I think it was a, it was a small um, dollar amount, but they had, they had sponsored that. And, and ultimately requested it. And, and where that idea came from was actually the Bronx, um, uh, Bronx city planning. 
So, uh, so this was requested, and, and what this was is the the Urban Land Institute is a um, or ULI is a, is a nonprofit organization, and um, and they're kind of tailored towards you know um, furthering um, uh, economic development, um, and these technical assistance panels are one of the things that they do. And um, so what this ended up being um, was a, a collection of um, individuals across the industry with uh, with various uh, different expertise and uh, that came and did this assessment. Now, um, so we, we knew that, the, uh, that this was requested um, and um, in, in, the, uh, in the September meeting, they had announced the actual date that the meeting would, that the ULI TAP meeting would occur. And, um, and once, uh, once that happened, um, you know, we kind of prepared to, uh, to release that information in the, uh, in the article that we wrote up um, that had a lot of other uh, details to kind of contain within. So the, the uh, actual uh, uh, making contact with the ULI, the Urban Land Institute, uh, is that significant? Does that show uh, a lot of progress in their desire to have this stadium? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to say that exactly um but i think i think it points towards it and and there's a couple things to be clear here that the um this this uli um technical assistance panel was not requested by the club it was not requested by the developer it was requested by the local community and so i think um and while i'm sure there are some other behind the scenes things that might be encouraging that um, what it does signal is that the community board, or at least um, its uh, leadership, um, sees the viability of a stadium in the area, and they want to make sure that they have um, taken the appropriate measures to ensure whether or not this is at the um, this is beneficial for the local uh, the local community, and what else can be done around the stadium that can help benefit that. So I, I want to dig more into the meeting and what we discovered and, and uh, really curious as to what you think you learned. Uh, you, you've really dug into this. Uh, as far as your understanding is, uh, there are three sites under consideration right now by New York City FC. Is that accurate? Another one in the Bronx and then one in Queens? Yes, that is what uh, Council Member um, Diana Ayala had said at the May 2019 Community Board Forum meeting. Um, and, uh, while, while she mentioned that there were three potential sites, she did mention that, uh, that the developers seem to be zeroing in on the, uh, the river Avenue site in the Bronx. And, um, and it doesn't, I haven't, it doesn't appear that there's as much interest in the other sites. Um, though I, I will have to admit, um, the amount of digging into those ones have, hasn't been the same as, as this particular site that we've done. So that to me is a significant part of your article is that Ayala made that statement that she felt that there was a more interest in her site? Yes, and actually, um, through a separate records request from uh, for the office of Diana Ayala, we did actually note um, that um, another reporter um, had requested uh, an interview with Diana Ayala to to talk about the you know, potential um, the, the rumored stadium actually around the Harlem River Yard site. Which is the other um, the other location that was rumored in the Bronx, and um, and in response, her, her uh, uh, Ayala's chief of staff had actually responded, and uh, where um, I to basically to provide comment on the on behalf of Ayala, saying that she had concerns with that particular area due to traffic congestion. So um, I find that particularly interesting because we haven't seen any kind of similar response regarding the other location in the Bronx. Uh, we're with Chris Campbell uh, with the outfield uh, who uh, wrote a recent article, NYCFC Stadium Plans Gather Steam in the Bronx, uh, specifically referring to the 153rd Street and uh, River Avenue lo location, the GAL site, GAL Manufacturing Corporation, a 100,000 square foot factory that it, it occupies, you know, part of this proposed landscape and this uh, technical assistance panel uh chris is uh, they they came in and toured that site and spoke with stakeholders so let's uh let's move on to that part of this uh, as they were only there for a couple of days the second day was this planning meeting that we both attended which uh, kind of uh, showed some of their discovery and some of their recommendations so it seems like a short period of time but let us uh, tell us what 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 they did and and then we'll get to the meeting. 
Yep. So, um, so they, like you mentioned, they, they interviewed stakeholders and they, and they toured the site and basically the, the whole premise was to, um, to present ideas in terms of uh, how redevelopment in the area with a stadium at the centerpiece of it can benefit the local community there in the Bronx. And, um, and so there were a lot of different items that were discussed. Um, a lot of it is seemed to be focused on um, really what, what they called activating the waterfront, which is, um, is redeveloping the area there to be able to allow local residents the ability to, to get back to the Harlem River and, um, and enjoy the parks and other developments that are happening there. Um, so one of the challenges that the, the local community has is um, a, a large amount of underutilized parking garages and lots. And these were um, are mostly used for Yankee Stadium um, game days. Um, and so on non-game days, they are um, you know very rarely used. But even on they even they mentioned even on game days, um, they're still um, quite underutilized considering the um, just the volume of of parking lots and garages that are there. And so um, they wanted to look at how can these be repurposed. Um, for for other development areas to really better benefit the, uh, the local community because right now um, they aren't doing so. And so um, so this technical assistance panel looked at a lot of different ways to do so. Um, another um, item that they looked at was how a potential stadium can um, can be incorporated into the community to be really uh, fit into the community, but as well but also give back. Um, one of the um, the actual ideas that were floated around was, um, was taking an example from, from the UK where um, Emirates Stadium actually has a school inside of it. Um, now, who knows if that will happen here, but it was something that was floated as a possibility. Um, other um, items that they, they talked about was how the stadium can be used year-round, so that it's not necessarily just a um, only game day um, kind of attraction. Um, some things that were incorporated into to that were um, surrounding plazas and, um, you know, possible um, local community and children programming. Um, you know, specifics around that in terms of exactly what that might entail weren't really discussed, but they were one of the ideas that were presented around it. Now, th that the school in the stadium at the Emirates, uh, that was a presentation by Neil McComish from Scott Brownrig. And uh, after, uh, after we speak, uh, Chris, uh, I'm going to replay an inter interview I did with him uh, right after, but he's uh, he's an architect and uh, is more of a sports stadium guy on the architecture side. So, and he's a uh, he's a he's a big football fan. He uh, disclosed that he's a Chelsea FC supporter, and uh, has certainly studied Stamford Bridge and, and and other stadia. And the one thing that stood out uh, from the interview is he was talking about the area, this proposed area for the New York City FC Stadium. He uh, the quote there is there is enough space to make it happen. He made it clear that he is not designing it. He's just advising. But he said this part of the Bronx is blessed with the amount of public open space and green space uh, that uh, it it hasn't been maximized from what we've heard. So it, it tends to give a uh, an optimistic outlook as to this is a good site, but there's a lot of work ahead. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, there's a there's a lot of um, moving parts and a lot of different um, structures that are already in place. And 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 on top of that, you have actual um, uh, public transportation and um, and uh, highways that would need to be incorporated. And, and actually, there would be need to be the movement of a of a whole um, uh, ramp for the uh, for the Deegan Expressway. So it's um it, it would it would take some significant effort but i think it's definitely something that that's uh being considered so chris you've got this um recommendation coming they announced that uh, in early january uh the the meeting i don't know if you look at that meeting as being well attended by the community or not but there, there will be a document with their entire list of recommendations and, and what they discovered in their in their two days that's going to be available online uh early in the new year uh, and uh, in the crowd were uh, a number of third rail Bronx supporters. I, I listed it as 20 or 25 of them. So uh, what, what was your feeling for the meeting overall? There, there seemed to be some, uh, well, you could tell that the supporters group, you, you could see it in their face and, and some of them spoke and, you know, how, uh, how thrilled they are that there's at least this little leak of information for them. 
Yeah, and um, and I think it's something that's that's finally able to you know to that's that's more tangible. I know there's been lots of rumors that's been floating around, but you know it's always been kind of a you know I I you know someone had said this to me, and and while that's um, that's nothing to discount completely, it's it's hard to uh, to really take any news without you know seeing some actual concrete communications or meetings happening behind it. Um, now, in terms of how the meeting went, I, I thought it went pretty well and in, in, in those supporters as well as other local residents made made a lot of uh, good comments and provide a lot of good questions. Um, one of the questions uh, that was around that was, you know, can this other development happen without the stadium? Right. And and they did mention that it could. But the uh, the main assumption um, that they were that they were instructed to use was that a, a stadium would happen at that particular gal location. Well, one of the and, uh, one of the. Uh advisors said I, I wrote this quote down we were given a very specific charge of what are the impacts of have a, having a stadium on the site as that question was asked you know so that's what they were there to see how the stadium fits in exactly and i think i think what that demonstrates is a couple of things one um the community board um leadership um uh, not only sponsored this to happen but they did it did so um with the direction of how does a stadium fit in here so I think that that shows that um, that they are um, are very uh, interested in, in bringing a stadium uh, to the area. Otherwise, they wouldn't have held this. The second piece is a lot of discussion around the other redevelopment was around city owned underutilized parking garages. But the centerpiece was um, was the state was the was the development of the stadium. And what that also includes is is the actual gal manufacturing facility. And um, and why that's important is that's actually a privately owned property by um, Gal Manufacturing, and, uh, I, and this is this particular part is my opinion, but um, I would find it hard uh, that to believe that Gal would um, be more willing to sell that lo that property for other development uh, rather than the actual you know dollars that Mad Equities or um, or the club would pony up to uh, to put a stadium there. And to define Mad Equities, that's uh, been documented as well. Uh, New York City FC with Mad Equities has uh, shown uh, a bit of a, a lean towards uh, a site in the Bronx, right? Yep, exactly. So here's one, and the the uh, back to the ULI. This uh, this group that came in, Urban Land uh, Institute. Uh, I, I had a question asked of me. All these advisors came in, including one from England. And uh, the, the first question somebody asked uh, was, you know, who paid for that? And I do recall at the beginning of the meeting that uh, there was a, a note that they were all there, uh, well, on their own time and, and free of charge. I don't know how uh, Neil McComish got in from uh, overseas, the U.K., and maybe his company paid for it. I'm not sure. Do you have any, uh, you have any notion on that? Um, so in regards to, I, I know a lot of the ones were from the local community. Um, so I'm not completely certain in terms of, a, um, you know, and, and, and you, as you mentioned, Neil came from the UK. So I, I can't say for certain, um, how, uh, his travel costs were, um, were handled. Um, but I know in, in terms of, uh, um, the, the records request that we had, um, we had for the, uh, um, for the community board. Um, they had noted um, within uh, emails contained that Community Board 4 had provided some funding um, for this meeting. All right. Uh, beyond that, you know, I've learned that this is uh, the only one of the three sites under consideration that has done anything like this, brought in a group of experts to uh, assess the impact on their neighborhoods. Could they ostensibly bring in that same ULI group? to identify those needs in their neighborhoods? Is that, is that what they do? They, they could. Um, now I, I believe, I mean, it would take some time. Remember this, this, uh, this technical assistance panel was requested back in April. So, um, and it didn't occur until the end of October. So, um, it does take some time because as, as we mentioned, these are individuals that, that have other jobs and, um, and they're, they're doing this on a volunteer basis. Um, so, uh, it, it does take time to, to plan and get that around, but this could be something that would happen that could happen 
um, at those other locations. And do you think it's significant that the, the South Bronx location, this community, uh, CB4, the uh, that they've already started the process, had the p- people in, they're going to get their firm recommendations in January? Does that put them uh, ahead of the game? I, I believe so. Yeah. And I know that uh, New York City FC, they've done a lot of uh, community work, city in the community, uh, in the South Bronx. Uh, I've been to East Harlem several times. There's a mini pitch there. Uh, I know I've, uh, I, I did a youth uh, soccer tournament report. And uh, it, and this idea that the, this uh, technical assistance group, as they put it, uh, they're arming the community with a chance to list their priorities and needs and uh, from what I understand, New York City FC does not have any major blueprint for how this stadium is going to be constructed or anything around it until they sit with community members. So that would give them a, a leg up as well, I would think. Correct. And, and while, um, while uh, the district manager noted that no proposal has been provided to them, and, and Ayala said the same thing back in May, um, I, I would I would find it hard to to imagine that the club doesn't have some kind of blueprint together, and that doesn't mean a final one, but I, I think a, a decent framework um, put together where the local community input can be uh, can can be added on, um, you know, in in certain um, in, in certain aspects. All right, so Chris, what is your uh, well? Let, what's the next step first, and then I want to get your final thoughts. But to, where does it go from here? Yeah, so the next step is, as you mentioned, in early 2020, this ULI um, TAP report will come out. Now, um, I don't think that the developer or club necessarily needs to wait for that. They should, probably should have some decent feedback already. Um, but that will provide some great feedback um, back to incorporate um, into anything that's put together. The immediate next step is to begin to get this into the ULERP process, which is basically the, the land use process for the city of New York. And to really kick that off um, is, is what would need to what would need to happen is an environmental impact study, which basically um, is a study on the, um, the proposed development and how it impacts the, um, the local environment and local community there. So that can take some time. Um, uh, and I don't know exactly how long it would take, but, um, you know, these things do take time and, uh, but that would be the, where it would, where it would get kicked off. And at that point, everything, uh, most everything should be available, um, you know, publicly available, in- including the scope of work in terms of the actual development. So I would imagine sometime around there or before that the club would have not make an announcement, but that is my, uh, my mere speculation. Right. And it's, uh, you know, and that's, uh, I, I think an announcement at some point is, is something that would uh, alleviate some of the concerns of the supporters, something to uh, look forward to. But again, as you said at the top, and it's been uh, it's been emphasized, uh, the community board uh, at, at the CB4 the, in the South Bronx, they're the ones that brought in this group uh, and to, to, to assess and file the report. There were no New York City FC uh, personnel at all uh, at this meeting, and uh, I, I think it would be uh, unwise of us to say that this indicates that this is surely the number one spot of the target for New York City FC. But uh, in your concluding thought here, how, how did you feel at the end of the meeting after you talked to a few people? Um, what's your sense uh, of this as uh, maybe the place? Um, I, I, you know, I get the sense that this is the place and I get the sense that that's, um, you know, this will be moving along. Um, I, I think the meeting was very productive, you know, the local community there, um, a lot of the individuals there, you know, have a bad taste in their mouth still after the Yankee stadium development and, um, some of the things that were promised there, um, that weren't carried through. So I think, um, it's important one to, uh, to incorporate the local community and, and definitely, you know, we can't have this be a burden on them, but also two, I think it's most important for the club and, and how it wants to, you know, interact and, and live within the city to fully incorporate the local community. Um, and so I think, um, I think this particular meeting is a great step in, 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 in doing that and, um, and, and pulling in that particular feedback. So um, I hope, I'm hopeful that we'll, you know, uh, see something, um, uh, you know, relatively soon. And I, and I do think that this is probably where it's going to end up being. All right, this is Chris Campbell. You can follow him at soup in NYC 27. 
He writes for The Outfield, which is at Outfield NYCFC. If you haven't read it, go back and uh, read his story. NYCFC Stadium Plans Gather Steam in the Bronx. Chris, uh, great stuff. Uh, thank you so much, and I know we'll be in touch again soon. All right, great. Thanks for having me, Glenn. The irony of this site at 153rd Street Plans for a complex at this very location were leaked in the summer of 2013. Eventually, it was abandoned, but now appears to be a primary target. Neil McComish was part of the ULI Soccer Stadium panel in the South Bronx. His background, sports stadiums and civic architecture. I spoke with him immediately following the public meeting. My initial uh, question to you after this meeting is, um, do you see this whole thing as something that could work uh, for the neighborhood based on your very brief uh, look at it? Absolutely. Uh, I, look, I, I think that the, the community's experience of the stadium has not been a good one um, because of, just because of the architectural proposition of the Yankee Stadium. It's pretty inward looking. Um, lots of blank elevations, doesn't really engage with the community, doesn't create the right sort of public spaces. And I think uh, the soccer stadium could be an enabler. And I've seen it all over Europe and all over the world. Um, that really good stadia uh, are born out of the community uh, because that's who they're supported by. That's who their fan base is. That's who, where their future players are going to come from. That's where their future assets are going to come from. Um, uh, uh, and I think it just could be a terrific thing uh, for this community, only having been here for a couple of days, of course. Can you define uh, some of the things that uh, where the community uh, becomes involved, uh, how it's structured so that it does work for the community, in your experience? Yeah, I, I, I think it's about um, the program. Uh, it's about the functionality of the stadium. It's also about the stadium itself in terms of um, bleeding that boundary, as we call it, you know, the inside-outside approach. So the stadium spills out even on non-match days. So um, we're all football fans and we all enjoy watching football, but we often forget that the kind of theatre of football starts when you wake up on a match day, you take a train or... You drive a few miles and then you walk the last couple of miles to the stadium. That's the kind of prologue to the theatre of watching a soccer game. So uh, I think the way in which the stadium then does community engagement is by outreach. So, you know, it, as a for instance, you know, every summer they have a junior five-a-side football uh, outside of the stadium. Um, that they have practice facilities in the community, uh, that the community gets involved in things like sports science, sports therapy, and it becomes an educational tool. Um, because I think the idea of contemporary new stadiums is that they are a community hub. Um, you know, one of our great rivals, as I'm a Chelsea fan, but one of our great rivals is uh, the mighty Barcelona. And Barcelona's slogan is Mason Club, more than a club. Uh, and I think that that is the aspiration uh, of every contemporary stadium uh, and the way in which they are an integral part of the community um, I think is absolutely vital. They understand that we are their fan base. Um, owners come and go, that's the truth of the matter, you know. Um, clubs exist because of the supporters who support them. Now, in your observation, the uh, infrastructure possibilities, is there enough uh, land, is there enough access? Uh, and again, over a brief period of time, taking a look at it, but you're an architect, so, uh, it, and you initially said, yes, it can work here, but mm -hmm. so there is, there is enough space to make this happen. A absolutely. I, I mean, um, we're obviously not designing the stadium, um, we're just advising on it, but I think that this part is blessed with the amount of public open space and green space it has it doesn't necessarily personally from what we've heard maximize that in terms of um, programmed events in those public spaces i think there's also an interesting idea about a green necklace that ties them all together and the stadium can become part of that and facilitate that so 
the way in which the stadium looks outwards, I think, is uh, entirely uh, appropriate on the site that they're intimated to be looking at. And I think all of the supporting infrastructure can be done if we take a slight, uh, as one of my colleagues described it, a modal shift in terms of our thinking about how you get to and from stadium places. So, you know, could you imagine um, arriving at the stadium having travelled from Manhattan or any other part of New York by by ferry or water taxi to a new water point? You know, what a great sense of arrival that is. And it takes out some of the, the traffic. And as we spoke of previously, lots of European cities where stadiums are embedded in the city, not out in some parking lot 30 miles out of the town. Um, they're very good at thinking about public realm, public spaces, as shared spaces. So the pedestrian and traffic uh, starts to mix. People drive at slower paces. The preference is for the pedestrian, not for the car. Uh, and I think all of that infrastructure exists here. I think it just needs to be um, reimagined, really. You, you showed slides of the Emirates and also Audi Field uh, in MLS. So um, what was the purpose of that? What do they um, contain? What do they have that would be attractive or maybe possible here? Uh, I think that whole sense of arrival, that whole um, public asset, you know, the idea that great public spaces that can be used all year around for pop-up theater, for, you know, pop-up uh, farm shops, local community, local produce, that the stadium then employs inside. You know, who wants to come to uh, watch uh, New York City football and just buy a, a Budweiser? You know, I want, to be, I want a local craft beer from the Bronx. Thanks very much. You know, I want the authenticity of that experience. Uh, the Emirates, uh, I use as an example, because their social program is absolutely breathtaking. Um, as I mentioned in the presentation, uh, the school with the biggest attendance in all of London uh, is the Emirates Stadium. It has 10 classrooms in it. Children go to 100% attendance, A, because it's a really cool place to go to school and have lessons, and two, just on that off chance that you might see a superstar. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, I think... Uh, whoever uh, develops the stadium to benchmark it not just to other football facilities or other stadiums or other sports facilities within the US but to look at what they've done in South America Europe you know to benchmark it internationally to make it an international icon within the borough of Brooklyn uh, sorry Bronx has got to be uh, it, it's got to be the way to go and, you know, this is obviously something where New York City supporters are looking for every kernel of hope that they're, they're getting their own soccer-specific facility. But in your experience, and even though you haven't constructed something in New York, it's a process. And, um, but would you regard this as a glimmer of hope at, at the very least? Uh, I don't think uh, the community board uh, would have engaged uh, the Urban Land Institute uh, and they then in turn engaged us um, if it wasn't at least a, the germination of an idea, let's put it that way. Uh, it's clearly embryonic, um, but the number of people that we've had engagement and interview sessions with over the last two days, um, I would suggest uh, indicates that there's a groundswell of support um, and in my experience, um, when there's political and community support for a project, um, they're more likely to go than not. The full report from McComish and the technical advisors will be released in early 2020. For more on stadiums and their impact on the community, let's uh, summon in Rick Eckstein. He's a Ph.D., professor of sociology at Villanova University, an expert in sports and society, including stadium financing. He co-authored the book Public Dollars, Private Stadiums. Uh, an editorial reviewer called it 
quote, a revealing dead-on investigation of the modern-day sports stadium boondoggle and its often devastating impact on American cities. So, uh, Rick Eckstein, welcome. How are you today? Fine, Glenn. Good to be with you again. So we had the, uh, the Urban Land Institute provide the technical experts to explore the feasibility of a soccer-specific stadium at 153rd Street and River Avenue in the Bronx. We heard that earlier. Uh, but as you have documented and, and followed in recent years, there are potential pitfalls for the community as well. But let's get to, to the book and what inspired you. Was it was there an event? Was there a moment? Is there something that you saw that you felt like, wow, I've got to really share this? But we, my, my colleague and I, uh, we were trying to take our research in a certain direction, and we've always been interested in sports. We're always we've always been sports fans, and we noticed this trend for building new stadiums, and that they were always accompanied by explanations and promises that they were going to rejuvenate uh, the, the neighborhoods that they were built in, that they were part of an overall, let's say, ur- urban redevelopment strategy. And from the first couple that were built, we sort of noticed anecdotally that not much was actually happening, that there was a lot more uh, sizzle than there was substance. And so we started to look into different stadiums. It was a, there was a binge going on in the mid-'90s, late-'90s, early 2000s, so there was no shortage of new stadiums and cities that we could look at. And we went in with an open mind, Glenn. We said, well, we were trying to figure out what patterns we could find where stadiums were successful in rejuvenating local economies and where they weren't. But what we kept finding is that none of them rejuvenated local economies. They were basically a bust in terms of these, uh, in, in terms of these promises, which had been borne out for years by sports economists. So, so what became our premise was, why do these things keep getting built even though they don't deliver on their promises. And that took us to, uh, at first, nine cities and 14 stadiums, and later on a whole bunch of stadiums uh, that were built subsequently. And when we were getting out of the stadium business, then Major League Soccer came along and started their stadium building binge. So it's been uh, been kind of nonstop for 20 years. But the promises are the same, and uh, I've gotten pretty skeptical through the years that, that there are going to be a lot of deliverables with, with most of these promises. Well, what does this Bronx community have to be aware of uh mostly i mean you you've you've read the article um you've heard a little bit about uh the plan and this is certainly embryonic stage but because these technical advisors came in it, it this community is very serious about this project yeah i'm sure they are and, and i'm sure the people who are getting ahead of the curve uh are, are not ill-spirited they have the best interest of the community at heart but, but the, the analogy I like to use sometimes is you remember when, you're, when your kids were young and you're reading them stories and you're reading the same book over. They want to hear the same book over and over again, and you read it 30 times and 40 times. And eventually you get to know it by heart. You don't even need to pick up the book anymore. And this is almost what we've got going on with stadiums. It's, it's the same explanations given every time, 30 times now, 40 times now. People, for some reason, either forget or don't look around at other instances when when the promises that are made don't materialize so even though people mean well there's just such a there's just such a consistent history of not living up to these expectations that you'd figure at some point people would just learn and move on and say well look we're going to build this thing but we're not going to make all these promises we're going to build it because we want to build it and we have the economic and political power to build it and so let's just get it done and be honest about it but it's still that all the gyrations that come through, it's going to provide, uh, you know, development. We're going to reuse the land. We're going to be able to use the stadium not just 19 times a year for soccer, but all year round with plazas and programming. We're going to – one of the great phrases I heard in your interview was uh, – or maybe it was, it was uh, reading an article about it was that they want to activate the waterfront. Uh, those, that's the kind of terminology that's, that's often used. In fact, it's exactly the terminology that was used in Chester, Pennsylvania, where the Philadelphia Union play. Ten years ago, they were going to activate the Chester waterfront and turn it into a tourist destination. And of course, that hasn't happened; hasn't come close to happening. So I'm always I'm always one of these these promises that are made about uh, rejuvenating areas, about giving people uh, an urban landscape that they can be proud of. It's just not going to materialize because it never has. I guess sometime it'll have to be the first, but it just hasn't happened yet. Well, to be clear, New York City FC uh, has not really been involved at all in any sort of community meeting or any sort of architectural uh, structure of the stadium. And uh, it's clear uh, that they will when they uh, start. uh, There's three sites that uh, are apparently under consideration, two in the Bronx, one in Queens. 
Right. And the history of the club, the short history of the club, is that they are uh, very engaged in the community, have already uh, done uh, the mini pitches uh, that the, they've uh, constructed. There's 30 now, I think, up with 50 total that will be all around the five boroughs. I mean, that's just part of it. So uh, maybe this could be the first time. But what what are the kinds of things you mentioned Chester, Pennsylvania, you know, and, and I was at that planning meeting. And yes, activating the waterfront, I think, was one of the, you know, an access to get there. You know, the infrastructure has to be, you know, really changed so that people could get there easily. I mean, wh- what are the things that prevent this from uh, ultimately happening? Well, usually the, the any economic impact statements or environmental in- impact statements that are that are originally done usually are, are very cursory. They don't really go into depth and detail about the kind of uh, fallout or the kind of impact on the community that this is going to have. They tend to be uh, more fantasy documents and advocacy studies than they are really cold, let's say, social scientific uh, research documents. And and so it paints a picture sometimes that there's only going to be positives, that there aren't going to be negatives, that people are going to lose access to to various places during construction. You know, when Yankee Stadium was built, it was it was built on top of a very popular uh, park where the residents of the Bronx came to play. And it was supposed to be rebuilt within a couple of months, and it took years, I think, to rebuild uh, McCombs Dam Park. I think that was that was the name of it. And it's it's good when a, when a club has outreach like this. It's uh, it usually fosters good feelings. Uh, it's just a question of justifying any kind of public subsidies that are that are given for this, either direct or indirect, because sometimes subsidies are are not just dollars. There are tax abatements or development zones are created, which would uh, benefit a, a certain kind of investment. Uh, but the the fact that the club is not involved directly usually. What we found is that that kind of low-level involvement or lack of involvement usually works in the favor of people who are uh, trying to develop these stadiums because there's less likelihood of the of the team being identified as as pushing things in their own interest or in supporters of it uh, you know, being accused of of engaging in corporate welfare. So, and strategically, anyway, I don't know if, if NYCFC is doing this on purpose, but they're they're doing the right thing for them. If, if they think that their business model would, would benefit from having a, a new stadium. And, and, you know, anything that you, that you do for the community, that's always a plus. So what's your experience? And I, I guess, you know, Chester, very close to where you live uh, in Pennsylvania, in the Philadelphia Union, almost using that as, a, as an example. But that's not to say that's the, the way it's going to run. What were some of the things that, that failed there? Is it just purely financial? Uh, is it purely private dollars are promised but public dollars come into play or it'll only be this much in public dollars and then that side of it increases what are what are the some of the things to look at directly here well i think the most important parts is is that given the history and the changes in stadium dynamics over the last couple of decades it's it's getting harder and harder to justify building just a stadium with some kind of public financing because it's it's clear that they just don't bring the goods when they're open. So now they're usually folded in to larger development projects. So the stadium is just going to be one piece of, let's say, five or six things that are going to go on, let's say, on the Chester waterfront or, let's say, on the the Harlem River waterfront in the Bronx. And what happens and what to be on the lookout for is that when these bigger development projects get proposed, usually, almost always, I'm not going to say usually, I'll say always, the stadium gets built first. And sometimes the rest of the development comes along later, but usually it doesn't. So in Chester, for example, and I'm going to keep returning to that because it's, it's sort of the poster child, I think, of the modern stadium movement, is that the, the stadium itself was part of a $450 million development project for the Chester waterfront. The stadium was roughly, let's say, a quarter of that. And $100-plus million of public money came from the state, and came from the county, the county where I live, and they built the stadium at a roughly $130, $140 million, and then the other $300 million of development has never come about, and it's been 10 years. There were supposed to be office buildings. There was supposed to be retail. There was supposed to be a conference center. There was supposed to be a hotel. They had lovely pictures on the website, lovely pictures next to the stadium about what the new what the new zone would look like, and nothing has happened. And that gets repeated, you know, in, in city after city after city. 
where these large projects are promised, the stadium gets built, and then either they run out of money or perhaps the opposition gets a little stronger, perhaps they lose some media support, perhaps a political champion uh, gets uh, not reelected. So things change, and you know, without, without looking into intention, I wouldn't say that, that, that this is necessarily done purposefully, but it's done, and this is, this is the dynamic and the historical reality. So bigger things that are promised for the waterfront in, in the Bronx, let's say, or for, uh, for Willits Point in, in Queens, I say, well, build the other stuff first and then build the stadium, and then, and then I'll, I'll start believing them. Right. Reverse it. Uh, Rick Eckstein is our uh, guest, uh, the co-author of Public Dollars, Private Stadiums, and we're focusing in on uh, one of the proposed sites for New York City FC uh, in the Bronx at 153rd Street and uh, River Avenue following uh, a planning meeting. So, Rick, uh, we talked about it, uh, a big part of the, the meeting focused on uh, activating the waterfront, but also this 10-minute walk from end to end. They have these, like, anchors on either side. But there's a huge infrastructure because the word challenge was used several times at the meeting, too, and that, that is how, how, how to get this done. There's uh, off-ramps. There's... Uh, Metro North. I mean, there's a lot of things in that area that if you look up at a chart, you can't really see. So in your experience, how does that work? I mean, City Football Group has talked about privately financing the stadium, but there's so much more to it here. That's right. And, and usually what happens in these, in these instances is that uh, most of the discussion takes place about the bricks and mortar of the stadium itself and how much or what percentage the team's and and or the city are going to contribute. But there are, as you say, there are all these hidden infrastructural costs that usually don't get included in the bricks-and-mortar price tag. So as you were saying, road construction, uh, exit ramps, entrance ramps, train stations, sewer lines, electric lines, uh, any kind of uh, permissions that might be needed in zoning ordinances and zoning uh, whatever they call them when you, when you get the, the waiver on the zoning things. All these things cost money, and they're, they're not part of the bricks-and-mortar. Uh, the opportunity cost for the community on having certain roads shut down for six months or a year, or having a certain or losing access to certain to certain points on the waterfront while the construction takes place. All of these, uh, you know, what the economists call externalities, they're usually not included in the price tag, or at least not that part of the price tag that the teams and other private entities are are willing to pick up uh, up, up front. Now, I, I would imagine every uh, city has its own. Uh, idiosyncratic uh, dealings with government and and the different maybe even tax laws this area in the Bronx which you're somewhat familiar with it, how long would it take do you think I mean rough estimate if there were an agreement that we're doing this what what is the timetable we're looking at is there any way to estimate that well any estimates anyone who comes up with an estimate for a timetable you should automatically take that and and double it especially when you're working in an area that's highly congested like this. It's one thing building on a brown site or, or some undeveloped piece of land where you don't have to worry about things like people and houses. But this is a, this is a vibrant area. This is a busy area. There's hundreds of thousands of people that probably live within a few square miles, and their lives are going to be impacted. And you just can't come in and build a stadium and build these other alleged amenities without disrupting people's lives. And so that's going to increase the time frame and, and the, the care that people are going to have to take, the developers are going to have to take to make this work. So even in a, in a site like, again, at Chester, where it was bare and barren, it still took two years to build the stadium, and that was, that was even without all the ancillary development that was promised but, but never delivered. So working that in to, uh, to an area and a community that's, that's already very crowded and busy, it's going to, I would say, no, no less than four years probably from, uh, from, from breaking ground to finishing something, no less than four years. That would just be an estimate based on other stadiums that, uh, that, that took a similar amount of time. Rick, if you were a member of the community uh, and, and you were looking at everything and then eventually communicated and maybe we're on some sort of board uh, where you were in the same room with New York City FC uh, administrators and architects forming the blueprint and all the different things that are, are, are going to be uh, seen in the future based on you know what, what they're trying to do for the community. How do you avoid uh, a Chester situation where $300 million just goes unspent to, to develop the surrounding areas? I mean, you may have said yeah, it, well, 
you know, do the do the developing first of the area and then the stadium. But but what else? Well, I, I think first of all, I want to make clear that I don't have any, uh, you know, I, I don't begrudge at all the, the teams uh, trying to do what's best for their business. And if they think that this is going to help them uh, flourish, uh, and I'm, I'm usually don't think that there's bad intentions. My, my critique usually comes from having government subsidies uh, for this for this private business, for this private enterprise. And, and so what I would, I would tell the team is to be as honest as possible with uh, the government entities because they tend to get lost sometimes in the grandiose nature of these projects. And it doesn't matter what political party they're, they're, they're members of. They, they like having these big things to show. Look, there's the stadium that was built while I was on the city council or on the, uh, on the community council. So for, for the teams, just, just be straight up. Uh, don't exaggerate what's going to be done. Be be brutally honest. If if you're going to really just build a stadium, then say you're going to just build a stadium. Uh, that you're not going to be the developing anchor for uh, a whole host of other things that's going to transform that section of the South Bronx or that section of Queens. Uh, my warning is more for the as a scholar. My warning is for the is for the governments, for the public entities who are so quick to jump on these bandwagons. Uh, stop. And maybe go take a visit to Chester or go take a visit to, uh, to Austin where there, where there was a whole to-do there with the, with the Columbus crew moving and now them getting their own franchise. And, and look, at these, look at these places. Look at what's happened. Look at the promises. Don't just go into these, uh, these documents that people draw diagrams and they give statements of jobs created. Go down and look at the neighborhoods where, where promises were made and, and see what, what's happened and then cultivate – Public policy in response to that reality. So, so I, that my warning would be for the for the Bronx Borough government or for the New York City government uh, to look around and, and not always think that well this is going to be the magic time because uh, everyone says that they've got the answer to to all the pitfalls. All right, he's an expert in sports and society, Dr. Rick Eckstein, Ph.D., professor of sociology at Villanova University. Rick, uh, thank you so much for putting some perspective on this as well. Always good talking to you, Glenn. So there you have it, the soccer-specific stadium episode. A lot to digest and ponder. This episode available on TuneIn, iTunes, and Spotify, presented by Pro Soccer USA. And look out for my story on the NYCFC Soccer Stadium soon at PSUSA. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.